Mark chapter 6, we'll begin reading the first verse. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many were hearing him and were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? Are they not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and went around about the villages teaching. We'll stop the reading there, if you would bow your heads for a quick moment of prayer. Father God, once again let us acknowledge you, and magnify you. And beg upon your grace and upon the stead of Christ that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. Lead us today and give us your message and your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is an interesting passage to me. There's nothing out of the ordinary going on. Well, so long as you understand what it is that Jesus did Everything is in context and in uh, relation one to another. I suppose people healing other people by touching them is out of the ordinary for us, but not for Jesus. We find Jesus teaching. We find him preaching. We find him on the Sabbath day, it says in verse 2, going into the synagogue to teach as was his custom. We see him doing this over and over throughout the gospel accounts. What's different here? What's interesting to me and what I'd like to sort of push upon is verse 5. He could do there no mighty work. That's a strange statement. If you know much about the Bible at all, it's a very strange statement to say about the Lord Jesus. He couldn't do something. Now, I took a class uh, some time ago, and it was on the philosophy of religion, and it was very interesting. If you've never taken something like that and you have the opportunity, I recommend it. Uh, if you come across uh, some books on it, you're like one who likes to read and think on some things, it, it will really help you. Um, uh, it, it did not change my mind about any, anything. It helped me to understand some other people better, but really reinforced the truths that I held to about the real and living God. But one of the questions, of course, that's always brought up in the uh, instructors, I'm assuming in every one of these classes, sort of chuckles and he says, there's always the question of, can God make a rock too heavy for himself to lift? Right, and of course... There's so much logically wrong with that question. We're mixing categories and whatnot. But I say all that to say, it's a very, very strange thing for us to say that the Lord of heaven and earth can't do something. We would not be shocked to say that God cannot lie because that's uh, in contradiction to who he is. He is truth, right? We would uh, not be straining our doctrines or understanding to say uh, that he could not refuse a repentant sinner, of course, because he has said all who come in faith and repentance, he will forgive, he will save. But that's not what's said here. 
He couldn't do mighty works. I mean, that's the, the plain language of it, at least. That's the plain English of it. So I want to press upon this, and I want to look at it uh, in a couple different ways. I want to ask questions about and recall for us and review, perhaps, so that we all have in our minds, what is the power of Jesus? What is it that He could or could not do, apart from this scenario? And then I want to see what is the limiting factor, and what does it really mean? Because if we get this right... It'll be a great encouragement for us. If we get this wrong, then it's very dangerous theology and it leads to depression and it leads to false understandings and it leads to turning people away from the gospel. And if anything, we want to avoid those type of understandings, don't we? So let's, let's take a look at this. First, let's talk about Jesus' power. Do you remember those of you who were here, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, uh, and I read a text from Mark chapter 4, and uh, Jesus was on a boat with the disciples, and they were out in the middle of a storm, and Jesus was sleeping, and it was at that point that Jesus, they woke him and said, don't you care that we perish? And he rebuked the wind and the wave. Do you remember that discussion? Jesus, shown as the Lord of creation. And uh, we read a bit and, and referred back to Job chapter 38 when uh, Job and his friends or comforters or, or whatever you call them that sat there and gave him bad advice for so long uh, heard from God and God said, I will answer you. And then he began to ask questions. Where were you, Job? You remember when I uh, preached on these texts and I said, uh, said that these are great questions for us to ponder, for us to remember who we are in God's sight and remember that we are as insignificant and yet God has lavished His love upon us. Insignificant in the sense that we do not have uh, enough understanding to question the God of creation rightfully. We have no strength, nothing to, to show off before God that He should be proud of us in that way. God asked Job some tough questions. Where were you when I created everything from nothing? Where were you when I heard the angels singing over creation? Where were you when I tamed the seas? You remember those things? And those should have echoed when we read in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus rebuked the wind and the rain and He said, Peace! Be still. This is that Jesus. This is that Jesus that uh, has power over all of creation because as John reminds us in the opening chapter of his gospel account, Jesus was, my phrase that I like to use, present and active at the creation of all things. John goes so far as to say nothing that was made was not made by Jesus. That's, that's a pretty impressive resume. That's a pretty impressive description of this man who in Mark chapter 6 it says he couldn't do something. It certainly wasn't because Jesus lacked the innate power. We understand that uh, Jesus set aside some attributes or, or, or traits. Uh, he didn't uh, utilize the authority that he had all the time when he was here living among us. For instance, uh, when Jesus was arrested in the garden just before his trial uh, and uh, persecution and crucifixion, uh, his disciples, namely Peter, drew his sword to try to defend Jesus from being arrested. And what did Jesus say? He said, put it away. 
Do you not know that I could call 12 legions of angels? Or if you want to adapt it to the song lyrics that we all know, 10,000 angels, which is a much smaller number, so let's stick with the Bible. 12 legions of angels he had at his disposal at any time. And we know if we read our Old Testaments that individual angels had great power. We think about before that the children of Israel came out of Egypt. It's, it's a wonderful story about the power of God and the protection of God for His people, but it's a terrifying story if you are not safe and secure in the covenant with this God because it's a tale of destruction. What happened in Egypt? Well, there was water turning to blood, there was flies, there was frogs, there was all these annoying things. And, well, they were more than annoying. But even past that, when you get to the tenth, And God sent the death angel. And the Bible records that there was not a single house or home or family unaffected. There was not a home where one was not dead. Except for those who had the blood on the doorpost. That's the Lord we're talking about. But Mark 6 says... He couldn't do this. It can't be because he didn't innately have the power uh, before Jesus uh, ascended back to heaven at the end of uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, just before that great commission where he says, go and, and make disciples of all nations. What did Jesus say immediately before that? What is it, verse 18? He said, all power, or you could read that, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This is that Jesus. What power did he not claim there in Matthew 28? Did he leave out creation? No, we've seen him have power over creation. Did he leave out power over diseases? No, we saw him throughout his ministry overcoming uh, people's diseases, blindness, lameness, leprosy. Did he leave out power over uh, men's souls? No, we find him saving people. Did he leave out power over devils? No, we've seen Jesus again, time and time again, casting out the devils. As a matter of fact, in this reading, Mark chapter 6, did you notice when they were astonished and they were asking things from whence hath this man these things? What wisdom is this? And then at the end of verse 2, even such mighty works are wrought in his hands. That's a reference to Jesus casting out devils and healing people. What power did Jesus not have? Friends, there is none. None. There is nothing that Jesus does not have power and authority over. And that has always been the case. In fact, the Hebrews writer, uh, chapter 13, verse 8, he said, Jesus Christ is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. So this morning as we come to this text in Mark chapter 6 and we see him doing the normal things, he's teaching, he's preaching. In fact, it does say that he uh, healed some people, but how is it then? How is it that in verse 5, and he, and make no mistake, that's referring to Christ Jesus. He could there do no mighty work. What's the difference? 
In fact, let's turn back. Do you have your Bibles still open? Flip back a couple pages of the first chapter of this same book. We don't have to go far. Mark chapter 1. This is, I believe, the reference when in chapter 6 and, uh, what is it, verse 5, they say, or, or excuse me, uh, verse 2, when he says, uh, even these such mighty works are wrought by his hands. I think it's re- uh, referring to this, Mark chapter 1, if not something like it. Round about verse 23, Jesus was, again, in the synagogue. He was teaching. Just previous to that, you find that they were astonished at his teaching. It seems like a parallel account of what we're reading in Mark chapter 6. But in verse 23, there was a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? And of course, we have the benefit of understanding that this was not the man speaking, but rather the demonic spirit that was possessing him, crying out to Jesus. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, what did he do? He came out. Why? Because Jesus has authority and power even over the dark forces that invade us in this life. Verse 27, they were all amazed. They were questioning themselves. What is this? What new doctrine is this? He even has authority to command unclean spirits. And immediately, verse 28, immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. This is in Capernaum. That's going to make a difference in just a moment. This is previous to what we read in Mark chapter 6. Not all of the Bible is necessarily chronologically ordered, but we can trust that this event happened before the other. What's the difference in this case? In this case, Jesus shows his power. He teaches, and they're astonished. By the way, the day that we stop being astonished by Christ Jesus is the day we are in danger. Even just the simplest things. Those of you who've been Christians for a long time, you've been, you've been saved for years and years, and, and, and God has proven himself to you time and time again. Do you not still find when we just read over the simple accounts of the gospel? So perhaps sometimes you're sharing with your friends or with a coworker or with your children or with your grandchildren about the gospel of Jesus. Just the simple facts. I'm not talking about debating the hard issues of doctrine. I'm saying, don't you still find... When you tell people that Jesus left the splendor of heaven to experience this life and that he died for us, doesn't that still just amaze you? It does me. It amazed these people what Jesus was teaching. How that God is holy and man is sinful and in need of a savior. And then he proved his authority. Uh, Not only by teaching the scriptures rightly, but by healing, and here in this example, by casting out a demon just by speaking to him. Hold your peace and come out. But here in Capernaum, not, not only were they just amazed, but they believed. Do you see what it says there in verse 28? Immediately Jesus' fame spread throughout all the region about Galilee. Verse 34, if you were to continue reading. And he healed many there of diverse diseases, cast out many devils, 
And suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. You keep reading uh, verse 40. And there came a leper to him beseeching and kneeling down to him and saying to them, If thou wilt, thou can make me clean. Do you see the difference? Here in Capernaum, Jesus is preaching, he's teaching. And they're amazed. But people are coming to faith. Even this leper who comes to Jesus, he said, If you will, you can heal me, Jesus. And of course he says, I will be thou clean. You see the faith that was uh, expressed there. Now let's turn back to Mark chapter 6. Same Jesus. Same authority. He didn't change his teaching from one place to another. But this is Jesus now uh, in Nazareth. This is Jesus in the hometown where he grew up. And when he came and he was teaching, and they began to question, and they were astonished. So far, so good. Verse 3 changes everything. Now, if we don't read the end of verse 3, if we just clip that off, then we could read the beginning of it in a way that's not offensive and that's not causing a problem, and they would just be questioning. Because let's face it, if you and I grew up in Nazareth in this time, and then Jesus, who we knew from down the street, so to speak came back and was making these claims and was doing these things, you know what we would say? What? Isn't that little Jesus? I mean, you know, we went to school together or, or we played together. Or, by the way, if your picture of Jesus doesn't include him playing as a child, let's talk about that sometime. That's a sad picture of Jesus. But anyways... These people knew him, knew the family, and they said, wait, wait, we, we know his brothers, we know his sisters, we know Mary and Joseph. Right? That's not a bad response. It would be hard for us to comprehend. It was certainly hard for those people to comprehend. But that's not the tone in which they were saying these things. Read the end of verse 3. They were offended at him. It wasn't a questioning like, I'm just so amazed because how can this be? How could it be that I'm actually living in a time where I get to see the Messiah finally come, whom our people have been waiting for thousands of years? Like, that's, that's, that'd be a good response, and people had that. But this was not that. This was, this is just Jesus. I can't believe he's saying these things. He cannot be who he says he is. They were offended at his teaching. He was teaching the same truths that Moses and the prophets had laid down so many generations before. He was teaching the same truth that he taught in Capernaum when they all began to spread around the good news and they began to come to him and say, if you would heal me, I would be clean. But that didn't happen here. They were offended at the truth that Jesus taught. They were offended at his right authority over all of creation and over sin and righteousness and over each one of them. See, that changes everything. Same Jesus in Capernaum as in Nazareth. Same teaching in Capernaum as in Nazareth. Same actions in Capernaum and in Nazareth. But they didn't believe. The difference in chapter 1 and chapter 6, if you'll take my meaning there, is the people's faith. But here's where we must be so very cautious. Here's where if we get this right, 
we will get a blessing and a message from the Lord that will encourage us in the days to come. And if we get this wrong, we'll be going in all the wrong direction. Because it is about the people's faith. It is about their responses. But we need to be very cautious when we say that. About what, what do we understand that to mean and what are we saying it to mean. Let me, let me give you a couple quick quotes from other verses. I wrote them down here. Luke chapter 7 verse 50. There was the woman as Jesus was at dinner. Uh, and she was washing his feet with her tears and with her hair. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, in Mark chapter 5, we can just turn back and read that. In verse 34, we had the uh, woman with the issue of blood. She said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. What does Jesus say to her? Mark 5 and 34. Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 41. Uh, there was the blind beggar, and Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. In each of these, uh, what, three, four instances, it's said that their faith has made them whole. Their faith has healed them. Their faith has saved them. This is where we need to be very careful. If it's only a matter of our faith, then I put this question to you. And here's where we need to be careful. And it's, it's a different understanding. It's a different category. And I'm afraid this uh, goes by us so fast sometimes when we say it or when we sing it. Sometimes God's people don't realize what we're saying. Um, there's a song on Christian radio stations that it's very catchy. It's well written from a musical standpoint. But I kind of hate it. Hope uh, whoever wrote that, no offense. But uh, the refrain is, that's what faith can do. Well, that makes sense because Jesus said, your faith has made you whole, your faith has healed you, your faith has saved you. So what's the danger in saying that? Because our faith is necessary, but our faith is not what is uh, accomplishing the healing, the forgiving, the saving. Here's what I mean. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, Paul said that he was taken up into the third heaven. He saw amazing things that are not lawful for men to tell. And he said, in order to keep him from getting too puffed up about his revelations, he was sent a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh. Do you recall that? Paul asked God, please remove it from me. Three times at least the Bible says that he did that. Now, if it's only about faith, then did Paul just not believe enough? You see the danger. We have to be cautious here. Let's bring it down to our now, here and now, to, to our level. Several of us will go to the funeral home this afternoon. Where a family, one of our families, will be grieving the loss of a loved one. Don't you suppose they would have preferred a healing and longevity of life? Did they just not believe God enough for it? You see the danger. Now, uh, there are churches, I haven't seen any of our churches, but there are movements who teach this. Well, if you're sick, if you've lost someone, if you're failing in your business, if all these things are bad happening to you, it's just you're not trusting God enough. It's you, it's you, it's you. And here's the danger, you see. We need never slip into that. Now, I've never seen that extreme among us, but I have seen just... just 
sort of stepping on that slippery slope. Because if that's the way it is, if that's what the Bible teaches, then, then you know, uh, all of us today need to be uh, judged for our unbelief because none of us uh, are flying around everywhere in private jets and this and that. And, you know, we've had sicknesses. My wife and kids are sick now. I guess I'm not trusting enough. You see the danger. That is not the message. How should we understand that then? When Jesus said to these people, and he did say to these people, your faith has made you whole, your faith has healed you, your faith has saved you. Let me uh, give you one verse to filter these things through. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. It says, by grace, through faith. Now in the English language, by and through can kind of be interchanged, but there's a very real difference in the text. The through there, picture in your mind's a conduit or a pipe. Your faith is the conduit through which God extends grace. It must be there. Faith is required. Faith is necessary. Faith is commanded. If these people had not trusted in these incidences, they would have not have been healed. They would not have been saved. We can see that evidence here in Mark chapter 6. They did not believe and they did not get miraculous healings. Faith is necessary. But you see, faith is not what's doing the heavy lifting, so to speak. Rather, it is the object of the faith. Because if it's only about our faith, then we can just forget our distinctives and we can say along with those people in the society who say, uh, as long as you believe it, strong enough. doesn't matter what you believe. But it's not about that. It's about the fact that our faith is in the one who is Lord and Savior, who is Lord of heaven and earth, who has power over creation, over sickness, over death, and over sin and the powers of darkness. Now that's awfully encouraging when we look at it that way. Oh, you must believe, and you've heard me say, and you will hear me say, you must repent of your sins and trust in Christ Jesus, or you will never be saved. But in all that, it's not you that's saving you. It's you looking to the one who does save you. There are uh, perhaps children or adults here today who are unsaved. I cannot look into your hearts. I tell you today, you must believe in Christ. And if you do it today, you will be saved. You'll be changed. And at the end of it, you'll not say, gosh, I'm glad I was smart enough to trust. I'm glad I trusted enough. I have never once heard someone genuinely converted and come up off the floor, or off the altar or out of the hole or wherever it was that they were. And say, I'm glad I did, I did. Everyone who has ever been genuinely uh, changed that I know of, and I believe probably ever, came up saying, thank God for Jesus. I've heard them come up and say, Jesus saved me. I've heard them come up and just say, thank you. I've heard them come up and not be able to speak at all. You know what's the same about all those instances? There was faith. And it was granted by God, and it was given by God, and it looked toward Christ, and Christ did the saving. Now, how do we apply that to Mark 6, and perhaps maybe even more important or more pressing this morning? What does that have to do with us? Because this happened a long time ago. Well, when we understand it that way, when the Bible says He could do no mighty works. It wasn't a lack of power or authority on the part of Jesus. 
It was the fact that God will not override your will in such a way, uh, figuratively speaking, to grab someone and drag them kicking and screaming down an aisle. That's not the way God works. God works on the heart. And He works on and through the mind. And experiences and puts people in your life and in your way to say things and to do things to make you stop and think and consider the reality of your situation. And through that all, God's Holy Spirit takes the pronouncement of Christ, whether it be a formal sermon, whether it just be a loved one telling you about Jesus, however you hear the gospel, God's Spirit takes that and points it to the heart, and the heart must look to Christ, but Christ in every instance does the saving, does the healing, does the delivering. It was no lack of power or authority upon Jesus' part. It was the fact that the gospel says Jesus died such that whosoever will believe will be saved. It does not say those who reject him, God will force his grace upon him. Now, every one of us, even those of us who are saved and have been for a while, we have rejected the Lord. We have struggled against the Lord. We have frustrated, uh, in essence, the Holy Spirit. But there came a point of time, and probably many points of time, hopefully, where God overcame our uh, objections. For the moment, in an amazing way, because God is drawing us, He's working on us, He's convincing us. In that moment, for the first time, we saw Christ as all precious and all we needed, and we figuratively leapt into His arms. Faith is required. But it's not faith doing the heavy lifting. That's the pipe through which God pours out His saving and His healing and His rescuing grace. Now, how does that apply to us? We see here that it's not a lack of power or authority upon Jesus' part, but it's a fact that He was not going to heal them in spite of themselves and save them while they were still in their rebellion. It matters because we live in a time where it's so very easy to get down about the mission of the church. In recent days, we've seen uh, times turn darker for godly living. So should we just give up? Because it seems what we're doing isn't working, if that's how you measure working. The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, I don't know how many of you are familiar with his calling. God said to him, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. In fact, uh, in chapter 2, it records uh, the vision how that God said to eat the scroll. In other words, take my words into you. But the interesting thing about Ezekiel's calling, God told him, you're going to speak in Israel. Whether they believe you or not, they'll know a man of God was among them. This is the connection to us today. We don't labor only where we see benefits and we say, well, if it's not working here, we're just going to close up shop, we're going to try something else. That's not what we're called to. We serve an all-knowing and all-seeing and all-wise God, and He has placed you and He has placed me here in this location and in this time. That means He knows what He's doing. And you know what? 
by and large, they're not going to hear us. They're not going to believe. We'll run into a whole lot more Nazareths than we will Capernaums, if you take my meaning. In fact, we can relate this uh, to our nation and then in, in a church-wise to the nation. Guys, it's not our calling to save the government or the culture. It's our calling to be salt and light and to spread the gospel that people might be saved. When that happens, sometimes cultures get reset. But our main purpose is not uh, to, the, to, to the government. Our main purpose is to serve the risen Christ, to be faithful to His witness, and to tell people about Jesus, because then they can be truly saved, no matter what the laws say or don't say. You see how encouraging that can be for us? Yeah, it's getting dark, and it might get a lot darker, and it might get a lot darker really quick. Jesus is still on the throne. Read church history sometimes. Do you know when the gospel has seemingly flourished the most? It wasn't in, in times of, of easy going. It wasn't in times when governments were leaving churches alone and telling them you can do exactly the way you want to do and we're not going to interfere. It seems throughout history, and I'm not going to say this is a causal relationship, but it seems throughout history, whenever Christians were persecuted the most, whenever it seemed like there was no hope in sight, if they were looking around, but if, but if they looked to Christ, and they have, and they did, and we can read about it, and that's how the gospel made it to where we are today. When Christians were persecuted, they looked to the Lord because they knew it was their only hope. And I don't care whether it's European history or American history or Asian history. Wherever Christians looked to the Lord, they found hope. They found solace. They found grace. And people were saved. That's terribly encouraging for me. Supreme Court decisions. Legislative actions. Presidential elections. Now, we need to do what's right. We need to be good stewards. We need to be voting our, our principles. We need to do as much as we can. But you know what? My hope is not in this government. <laughs> and, if it's your, and if yours is, it's in the wrong place. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus. And it doesn't matter what this nation becomes. We'll mourn it. We'll grieve it. And we'll try our best to tell people don't go down these paths that lead to destruction. But in the end, we are children of God and we are a servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is and therefore we shall be victorious. One more thing. I think the best application of this uh, is not necessarily toward our nation, although it's a good one. But it's toward uh, the inside, towards us, towards God's people, towards the church is the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we'll have to be like Ezekiel. And this church has seen that in its history. I know. I've heard about it. I've, I've read about it. There are times when churches do wrong. When God's people do wrong. When Christian people forget who they are. And they just flat do wrong. And there are times that in the midst of all that. Some people by the grace of God still stand for the right. 
Ezekiel was prophesying to his countrymen, to Israel, and he was telling them, you're going into Babylonian captivity because of your unfaithfulness. In this day and time, remember, we are here because God has placed us here and in this time. And it's not only so that this nation will know that a people of God was among them. It's so that even if our brothers and sisters in Christ in other churches decide to go astray, we still hold on. Perhaps one of the things that's sung about most, maybe even talked about most in the age to come is no more suffering, no more tears, no more sickness, no more aging, and those things are wonderful and they're great. But let me remind you, one of the great things of that great and terrible day of the Lord, all things will be made known, including all the times when God's people stood up against all odds because they knew who they were in Christ. So this morning, I offer you Mark chapter 6 not as a prescriptive text in the sense that uh, we should be downhearted and we should look at all the things that will not happen. I offer you this to a right understanding. We're going to encounter a lot more Nazareth than Capernaum. We're going to encounter a lot more people who don't believe than do. We're going to encounter people who want to uh, go along and get along more than they want to stand for what's right. But I say this morning, let this be an encouragement to you. Even when people are not responding, yet we stand fast, God will steady us. Even when people turn their backs on you and it's hurtful and you mourn from them, you cry for them, you go away. Let us be encouraged that we are still servants of the risen Lord and He is and always will be King. Even when great works are not being done because of people's unbelief. Yet Jesus is still Lord. And our hope isn't with the people. Our hope is in Christ Jesus. Let that be an encouragement to you this morning. You're not called to do mighty works. You're called to be faithful to Jesus. Can we bow our heads and pray? Father God, this morning, thank you for your grace, for your gospel, for your abiding spirit. We are nothing without you. Pray God that you would steal us, strengthen us for the days to come. Pray, God, that mighty works would be done, but when we don't see them, pray, God, that we be faithful to you. Help us. Forgive us our sins through Jesus' holy name. Amen. If there be any here who are lost and undone, and today the Lord is drawing you, awakening you to the fact that you need a Savior, then I pray that now would be the time you seek Him for the saving of your soul. If you are a child of God, then stand together and let us sing praise to our great God.